Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Julia Coronado with us with Macro Policy Perspectives. Let's rip up the script. Tiva Pharmaceuticals laying off a gajillion people. You know there's going to be layoffs in the Fox-Disney meeting as well. Companies have tepid nominal GDP. They have little idea of where revenue growth is coming from. So they're all going to consolidate and mate. That's the fear of the American public that Chair Yellen danced around yesterday. What is economic growth? Well, look, I mean, economic growth has actually been a little bit better over the last year, and it's been a little bit more broad-based. And yes, companies are still um, very, very focused on cost-cutting. We see that in very subdued wage growth continuing to be the norm rather than an upward trend that we would expect with this low unemployment. But I think overall, you know, the U.S. corporate sector, the U.S. economy is in seeing broader growth than it's seen in many years. And that's that's good news. I mean, I think what did uh, Chair Yellen say that there's fewer things that keep her up at night than uh, than there have been in many years. So so it's it's not four percent perhaps, but it is well pretty decent. You know, I look at the subheadline, John Farrell, benefits to consumers in Disney. You wonder what the benefits is to the employees. Yeah, you imagine <clears throat> the costs are going to go down, and you imagine people will get laid off. For me, right. what struck me about the meeting yesterday with the Federal Reserve was Chair Yellen doubting this administration's ability to get GDP up to four. Well, I mean, any economist, every economist, Republican and Democrat, there isn't a single economist, well, there may be one or two. There is, and some of them <laughs> work for the administration, Julia. But, uh, but, but actually, even a lot of, of, of uh, Republican economists that have worked for prior administrations, you, you can't um, practice economics seriously and think that we can have sustainable 4% growth. And I don't think, look, we talked about this earlier, Tom, it's not a forecast. Mm. You know, President Trump is not getting into the GDP forecasting business. He is marketing a tax cut. This is a political announcement. Uh, We don't need to see 4% growth with the slow uh, population growth that we have. I don't want you to be an equity strategist, but if you assume tepid nominal GDP. Right. Like the 30s and Andrew Mellon, corporations merge. Yes. That's a fact. Yes. And that's a further weight there, the quote unquote synergies. Here's the quote, John, from the press release. The acquisition is expected. I can't do I got to I should have a Ken <laughs> Pruitt voice. Go on. The acquisition is expected to yield at least $2 billion in cost savings from efficiencies realized through the combination of businesses. Some executives will be put on the rack. You know what Professor Galloway would say, don't you? That synergies synergies is Latin for job cuts. Yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, And that is sort of the trend towards the top of the cycle that we tend to see. Lots of mergers and acquisitions, slowing job growth, a focus on uh, maintaining the profit shares that 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 they have. So it's not, uh, and it hasn't been globally, a labor market that favors workers. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably not going to change. I mean, that that's a that's a harsh reality. Okay. So then within there, are you willing to predict wage growth? No, I mean, I, I think we might see some upward pressure, you know, a little bit next year. But that has been consistently one of the biggest mo- disappointments this year. Wage growth just won't accelerate. It's not even accelerating in sectors that are doing well and reporting tightness in labor markets like construction. Yeah. So there's something much more fundamental going on in terms of 
the labor bargaining process. But as far as you're concerned, Julia, as we spend the rest of the morning talking about this deal between 21st Century Fox and Disney, Mm -hmm. this is classic late cycle behavior? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Murders and acquisitions. um, You know, it's not like there's an acceleration in growth to invest into. And that's, I mean... This is the proof in the pudding, right? I mean, yeah. when we, even when CEOs were asked what they would do with a tax cut, very few say that they're going to invest and hire as a result, right? This is this is bottom line boosting. Uh, that's great. That uh, helps share prices, but it's not something that's going to flow freely into the real economy uh, in a meaningful way. Julia Coronado, macro policy perspective president and founder, joining us on the Federal Reserve and that deal that's just crossed the wire as. They finally get their fox. It's Disney getting a chunk of 21st Century Fox. Who would have thought this time last year that Rupert would be selling anything? No one. From, from, from when I talked to experts on this, truly John Farrow, no one. Yeah, and the question remains, and as you said, it's not in the press release. Is where does this leave James Murdoch? Where does it leave James Murdoch, and does he um, does he get any kind of you position know, within the uh, the Walt Disney Company? I, I, I wonder what they'll do with the Simpsons franchise. You know, I, I look are you serious Marvel. about that? He's very focused yes. on that. Why, why, what, what are you worried about? Why do you think I became like I became? I have you inspired by set. inspired by Homer. Inspired by it, it's poetry. It's oh, like, wow! It's like American Shakespeare. There we go. <laughs> or something like that. Julia Coronado, thank you so much. Let's get right to it. We've got nine minutes with Jan Hatzius of Goldman Sachs, and I'm going to frame him this way, is long, long before the crisis of 2007, toiling away in the dungeon of Goldman Sachs economics. Young Hatzius, working with Mr. Dudley and Mr. McKelvey, said, watch what Americans do with their money. Your work on mortgage equity withdrawal at the time was brilliant. What's the thing you're watching now? like you looked at the flows of mortgages a million years ago? I would say probably our star, the equilibrium funds rate and financial conditions. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of focus on the idea that there is a, a, a long-term equilibrium federal funds rate that you can estimate and that the Fed's just converging to. <clears throat> but my view is that this can change. The, the views can change. And right. what we really ought to be watching is how, how do financial conditions develop as the Fed raises the funds rate. And what we've been seeing is that they've been hiking the funds rate, but financial conditions have actually eased. And I think that tells you something very important about how these long-term perceptions can shift. This sounds like a Randall Krosner conversation. It was wonderful to speak with the governor from Booth School, Chicago, um, yesterday. The linkages that you observe every day, and particularly within your optimistic note about better economic growth and such, are you using traditional economics? I mean, if you look at aggregate supply geometry or ISLM geometry, it's supposed to link in at some point into the interest rate in the financial system. Do those models still work? I mean, we try to be eclectic. We use some of that, and we, you know, use uh, use other models. Um, I mean, I think the the IS curve is the relationship between output or economic activity and short-term interest rates, and that doesn't work particularly well. And that actually ties back into what we just talked about. If that did work very well, if there was a very clear relationship between output and the and the policy right. rate, it would be easy to back out. Mm. 
where the long the short term rate should be, but it's actually not so. Okay, easy. it's sixty thousand uh, feet, Jan. Then is this about the new technology and the bimodal labor America? Chair Yellen's word slack. Is it just a new model of technological overlay on two Americas, one fully employed and one lesser employed? Well, I think that's a that, that's that's also an important issue. Um, I mean, it, it seems to us that we are, you know, at full employment pretty broadly, but if you if you dissect the labor market more, you will find still some areas that are probably underemployed and other areas that are probably overemployed. Uh, so I think that that is an important important issue that we've looked at quite a lot in the in the last year in particular as well. Can we get to the headline call from Goldman Sachs for next year? Four hikes. What do you see that the Fed doesn't? Well, the Fed's not too far away. I mean, I think uh, you know we're at four. The Fed's model view is three. The market's priced for a little under two. Uh, but our basic view is that the Fed's going to keep doing what they've been doing since the fourth quarter of last year, which is basically deliver one tightening step per quarter. And that happens in an environment where, yes, inflation is still below their long-term target, but they also care about employment. They have a dual mandate, and the unemployment rate continues to fall you know, pretty rapidly. And we think they're go- the unemployment rate is going to continue to fall more rapidly than what the Fed has in their forecast, and so they're going to do a little more. Yeah, and are they worried about unemployment with the three? I think so. I mean, they would probably not worried in the sense that, uh, you know, their hair's on fire, but in the sense that they think that we're in the process of maybe moving a little bit beyond what we can sustain. What was interesting yesterday is that their estimate of the sustainable unemployment rate is still 4.6%. Yeah. But the forecast for where it gets is 39 That's a 7-10 gap. That's already quite a quite a sizable labor market overshoot. And I think, frankly, in the end, we'll see a bigger decline in the unemployment for rate. For you and the research that you do, what is the lag time for inflation versus GDP? GDP growth is accelerating. When does inflation start to pick up? I mean, it's more about the level of output or employment relative to what we estimate as potential. Um, so that's that's the relationship we're, we're watching. And you're right that that is pointing to somewhat higher inflation. That said, inflation is driven by a lot of things. And, you know, the strength of the macro economy is only one of them. The Phillips curve is quite flat. Yeah. Uh, and that means there are lots of other things that can also have an impact. What's going on in the residential housing market? What's going on with government uh, influence on the on the healthcare market. What's going on with cell phone plans? All of these things, maybe they're at some level related to the the macro economy, but certainly not very tightly. I want to put together your work together with the work that Francesco Gazzarelli would do with bond yields. Have you guys been speaking, and how does this work out through next we speak, year? We speak very frequently because yes. because most people are looking at where the ten year is right now. Wait, and wait, saying, wait, 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 wait! Are you on speaking terms with Francesco? <laughs> of course they oh, are. Okay, They're fine. Just, of course we're all, they are. all sure. part of the same team. Yeah, and some people are looking at where the ten year is right now and saying that the ten year yield is basically a function of where the Fed funds rate will peak, and that's where things are bouncing around somewhere in the twos. Does that argument resonate with your team? Yes. I mean, I think what he's also saying, though, in addition to that, is that the the term premium, the compensation that investors require over and above where short-term interest rates are expected to be, is very depressed at the moment. Uh, in fact, negative, according to uh, a lot of the estimates. And there is a good case for that to, to rise somewhat, for example, because the Fed's starting to run down the balance sheet. So I think both of those things are reasons for why longer-term yields over time should rise somewhat. 
I want to talk about nominal GDP. We've got the mating of Disney and part of Fox today. You're in a room with David Cost, and you're talking to Goldman Sachs clients about nominal GDP and the linkage into revenues. We saw a single headline from Honeywell yesterday, organic revenue growth 7 8%. That's a wow number. Can you tell David Costin that we're going to see better nominal GDP that will give corporate America a revenue pop? Well, I think probably not dramatically better than than what we're seeing at the moment. Uh, maybe a little stronger. I mean, for a, for a period of time, you could say some see something more like five rather than four, okay. but probably not for a long time. I think that's beyond beyond the supply potential of the of the economy in a two percent inflation environment. So I think mm -hmm. you look at nominal GDP growth. Of course, it's lower than it was okay. ten or twenty years ago. I, I've got the a listener emails in from Europe. It says, "Wow, you have Jan Hatzius and." John Farrow together, can you please ask this question? So we've got a listener question. Who's worse, AC Milan or Hamburg? <laughs> Who's, which you, you I would follow love to say Hamburg, AC right? Milan, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to say Hamburg. Uh, Is it, John, do you want to weigh in on this? No, I would just That's say Germany is quite clearly better than Italy, and maybe if we did a national team version of this, um, there's one clear winner there right now. That's for well, sure. How is the soccer different in Italy versus Germany? There yeah? is there is a real rivalry. One of Excuse us me, Doctor Hasius the... is with us. Let him answer the damn question. How is German soccer better than Italy? Well, Germany will be participating in the World Cup. There we go. See, did heat. I know that's where we heat. heat. There is um, there is a history here that goes back decades and decades. Please of discuss it. We've got World, Italy, of, of Italy, World Cup Italy finals. is 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 always has always been Germany's toughest opponent, yeah. and until two years ago. Uh, Germany had never beaten so, Italy at a major tournament. So what happened in the World Cup is in 1990, when it was hosted in Italy, Germany won it on the Italian turf. And then in 2006, when the World Cup was hosted in Germany, Italy won it on German turf. So in many ways, Italy and Germany have been upsetting each other in the world of football for decades, Tom. Lloyd Blank finds in a limo going, what the hell is that <laughs> talking about? So Jan Atzius, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Please don't be a stranger. We... Uh, enjoys work. He is, of course, with Goldman Sachs. Right now, we appreciate the support of the always inter interesting, always controversial Stephen Keene, no relation, K. E E N. He has the proper key name. The elite fancy pants people put an E on the end about 300 years ago. So Stephen Keen joins us from Kingston University in England. Stephen, as we listen to Mario Draghi, <clears throat> as we listen to Cherry Ellen, et cetera, et cetera, as Mr. Alpert would say, Dan Alpert, are we just dealing with an age of oversupply where there's just too much stuff out there? Well, too much of supply from central banks because the way they've tried to get out of this crisis that they had no idea was coming uh, is by pumping up asset prices through QE. And that's made a tiny leakage from the enormous amount of money that pumped into asset markets that dribbled into the real economy. <clears throat> now, if you compare how America's performed versus England versus the uh, Europe, you can see basically the ECB has been a complete failure because the other two countries had some degree of fiscal stimulus, which the European rules uh, rule out. And of course, unemployment in the European region is roughly still about 10%, which is more than twice the level it is in the UK and in America. So this is a continued use of a, of a wimpy 
expensive policy to reflate the economy because the European rules don't allow them to use fiscal stimulus. You're one of the great thinkers in this world of Joseph Schumpeter and creative destruction. Is central bank theory of the last 10 years nothing more than avoiding the always pain of any given creative destruction out of crisis and technological change? Is that all we've done is delay the pain? It's partly that they've also let an enormous financial bubble occur, which would not have occurred if they'd actually paid attention to the role of credit in the economy. You'll note from my book, Tom, that the UK had a, a maximum level of private debt between for the entire century, from 1880 to 1980, of 73% of GDP. Under central bank rules, where they ignored the level of private <clears throat> debt and they deregulated the financial sector and allowed them to lend, particularly for mortgages, that went to 195% of GDP. Now, if we'd been back in the days right. when you still had credit limited, we would have had that creative destruction with a the, with the minor credit downturn. They've given us the mother of all credit bubbles. Stephen Keane with us, folks. Thrilled he's with us out of Australia in Sydney and now at Kingston uh, in England. Uh, Stephen, we've got Robert Iger coming up, Bob Iger coming up with Disney about nine ten. Folks were thinking on Mr. Iger's date calendar off the uh, mating of Disney uh, with the Simpsons, which is uh, you really wonder what he's going to do with the Simpsons, among other things. uh, Professor Keene, I want to go to the work of Megan Desai of the London School of Economics, which is everything is about profitability. Are what we're really talking about is some sense of redux of the 20s and the 30s where there's no inflation. Companies are struggling to find profit down the income statement, and their only incentive is to merge. I mean, are we on the edge of an Andrew Mellon late 1930s? What's actually been happening instead is something that didn't happen back in the 1930s, which is the level of share buybacks. And that's all been financed predominantly by the amount of money generated by QE. So we've driven up asset prices in the process without needing to have firms merging. But the uh, the real weakness is they're not investing. So you're getting a change in the financial structure of the corporations, but none of that genuine investment. You need to be genuine creative destruction. So when you toss out your Euler equations and you look at dampening forces, can we do quantitative tightening into 2018, 19, 2020? Can we do some form or three or four forms of QT and not upset the apple cart like we did in August of 07. I think we're going to, well, I think it will happen, Tom, and I think it will upset the apple cart at the same time because the major factor behind the rise in the yellow of the S and P and so on is not the yellow, the orange-haired person in white in the White House. It's QE, which has been buying in the America's case a trillion dollars worth of bonds every year, meaning that the, the companies that sell those bonds then have cash that they then use to buy shares. And that drives up the share prices yeah. massively. Now, if they reverse that process, those share prices will fall. And as soon as they do, central banks will go into panic mode and go back to QE again. Stephen Keene, thank you so much. Professor Keene, greatly appreciate your attendance uh, this morning with Kingston at University. Now to our John Farrow and Mr. Iger.
Welcome our Bloomberg radio and TV viewers worldwide. Breaking this morning, a deal that reshapes the global media landscape. Disney buying most of 21st Century Fox for $52 billion. I'm very pleased to say that joining us right here, right now on Bloomberg TV and radio from Burbank, California, is Bob Iger, Disney chairman and CEO. Bob, great to catch up with you. Congratulations on the deal. I do want to backtrack just a little bit and say that a year ago, no one saw this one coming. Several months ago, no one saw this one coming. How did you get Rupert to sell some of the crown jewels? Well, good morning to you, by the way, as well. Uh, a year ago, I didn't see this one coming either, nor did I see it coming six months ago. Rupert and I have known each other for a long time. We have a lot of respect for one another and uh, occasionally get together to muse about the business. And in a get-together this summer, where we were talking about all the disruptive forces that we were seeing and the relative position of our companies, I left thinking, that there might be an opportunity for us to do something with him. And I thought about it for a few weeks, called him uh, thereafter, and suggested maybe we should get together and talk about it, and we did. Spent some time actually analyzing whether there was something to be done and what the value proposition might be for shareholders of both companies, and ultimately uh, rolled our sleeves up, got into a negotiation, and here we are today. And I think what we're doing is creating not only a great company, but a great global opportunity for consumers to not only consume great content uh, made by both entities, but to consume it under circumstances that are innovative and compelling and, and much more user-friendly, and that's what the consumer of today demands. Bob, we learned a little bit more about your future now, stepping down in 2021 versus 2019 previously. What's the future for James Murdoch? James and I have talked a lot about a potential role for him. He will be integral to helping us plan the integration process, and. He and I will continue to talk about uh, whether there's a role for him at this company. We've had a good relationship, and he's been extremely helpful in this process, and I look forward to talking to him more about it. Bob, a lot of people are thinking about the succession plan at the uh, Walt Disney Company now and thinking that maybe James, Mur James Murdoch could be part of that. Is that something you could see happening? Well, I'm now extended through 2021, and uh, the board of the company will have ample time to consider its options in terms of my succession and to re-engage in a planning process for that. And it's premature to really speculate. Ultimately, it will be a board decision. Well, let's talk about the here and now. There's a pretty hefty breakup fee on this deal. You must be pretty convinced that in the era of AT&T, Time Warner, that this deal, one that looks a lot more horizontal than that one, can actually close, Bob. What gives you that confidence? Well, we won't comment about the AT&T Time Warner uh, merger, although we will say that this is different, as you pointed out. But we think that um, this obviously will get a lot of scrutiny from regulatory authorities worldwide. It'll take some time. But we think the proposition here is very pro-consumer. Uh, what this combination will do, as I said a moment ago, is going to give uh, the consumer opportunities not only to consume far greater amounts of high-quality content, but to do so under extremely innovative modern, modern circumstances. And we think, at least from a regulatory perspective, if they focus just on the consumer, that that's actually quite a positive thing. Bob, there might we be have some, confidence. We, yeah, there might be some concern ahead, about sorry. control. Control of the box office. You're going to have a big chunk of the U.S. box office now. You're going to have more sports channels going together with ESPN. Why is that going to be positive for the consumer? Well, first of all, let's talk about uh, the movie business. You mentioned box office. The movie business is vastly different today than it was. There are numerous new entries, uh, entrants into the marketplace, Netflix and Amazon, to name just a few. And there are just hundreds and hundreds of movies being made 
worldwide. And so it's a very, very different market today than it was you know, just two, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, because there are so many players in the space and there's so much content being made, which is good from a consumer perspective and good from a creative perspective. On the sports side, the 22 regional networks that we're buying in the United States actually are great complements to ESPN. If you think about a national network and its TV affiliates, that's how we look at this. This is a national network or networks in ESPN serving consumers with national sports coverage. And then the 22 regional sports networks that we'll be buying, which are very locally oriented, locally focused, and the two will complement each other well and ultimately enhance each other's offering which is obviously to the benefit of their consumers. Bob, of course, this isn't just about content, it's about distribution as well. You're gonna gain some serious scale there too. Is that what you're most excited about, what you can do on the distribution side, and maybe more so outside the United States? We're excited about a number of things. I've talked about the content, I've talked about offering it in more compelling ways. This gives us a far greater global footprint. Uh, 21st Century Fox has done an amazing job at growing its international businesses with its uh, ownership of a piece of Sky in Europe that has roughly 23 million subscribers, its ownership of Star in India with you know, hundreds of millions of, of, of viewers a month. And so this gives us far greater international reach than we ever had before and an ability to reach consumers directly. And the other thing that's quite compelling about this combination is the talent that comes with it, not just on the creative side, the creative talent that Fox has been in business with and will continue to be, but the management talent as well. We look very carefully at uh, the talent at their, we look very carefully at the talent of their company and we know them well, we've competed with them hard over the years and we're looking forward to them becoming colleagues of ours and helping us run what we think will be a great company. Bob, you'll be inheriting a lot of talent. When we talk about synergies and we talk about cost savings, often that's Latin for job cuts. Is this Latin for job cuts again? Well, there are synergies, and uh, we obviously will take a look at the overlap uh, between businesses that are similar and look for efficiencies there, but the synergies and the efficiencies will come from multiple directions. Ultimately, we believe we're going to create a lot of opportunities for a number of people within the Fox organization, opportunities beyond the opportunities they've had today, and we look forward to planning the integration of both companies and getting to work to growing the company that will exist for the shareholders and to create long-term value. Well, the long-term value, what can you extract out of Sky? They've got a loss-making division in terms of the news unit of Sky News. Um, what do you want to do with the asset, Bob? Have you spent much time thinking about that? Yes, yeah, sure we have. Uh, first of all, 21st Century Fox will to continue, continue to pursue its acquisition of, um, of all of Sky and we're hopeful that they will be successful in doing so. Sky is just an amazing platform. Not only does it uh, provide consumers with a great consumer experience in terms of access to the programming, but also creates a lot of great programming from sports to news to all forms of entertainment. And we've actually distributed a lot of our programming on Sky. We're extremely impressed with their user interface, uh, their ability to attract and retain customers, the value proposition to their consumers, and uh, that obviously is a, a real crown jewel in the assets of 21st Century Fox. And we certainly would be looking forward to having the opportunity to have Sky be part of our company. Does Sky News have a future, Bob? Absolutely. All of Sky has a great future.
Okay, let's move on from Sky. I want to get your thoughts on Hulu. You're going to have a ton of content that you can push through Hulu now that you're the majority owner. Is that the goal here? And when you think about what you've done with Netflix recently on the Disney side, you've cut that licensing agreement. And I wonder whether you're going to approach the assets over at 21st Century Fox and think about doing the same thing with that content. Is that something you're considering? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we have uh, long expressed a desire to be in the direct-to-consumer business. We think that that is, in many respects, a way of the world these days. Not only does it provide consumers with better opportunities in terms of personalization and customization, but it provides the company with more opportunities in terms of reaching more consumers in more, consu in, in more consumer-friendly ways. And we think that's a compelling argument in terms of creating value. We will use the Fox assets in terms of intellectual property and intellectual property creation abilities to grow Hulu probably at a more accelerated pace. We'll also use the Fox assets to help complement our other services as well, Disney-branded direct-to-consumer service, as well as uh, on the sports front. Well, Bob, just to put you on the spot, though, what you did with Disney and Netflix ending the licensing agreement, is that something you think that makes financial sense to consider ending any license agreement that 21st Century Fox on the content side had with Netflix? Netflix has been a great partner to us, and we considered... Uh, essentially ending that relationship uh, very seriously because of the revenue that it generated for our company. But we're in the business of creating long-term value. We're in this for the long term. And as we looked uh, ahead and we saw the, basically the world that I just described, a world yeah. where direct-to-consumer uh, proposition was far more compelling, both for the consumer and for the distributor. We believed it was time, and we'll obviously take that approach, time to exit the, the Netflix relationship, and we'll take that approach with the assets that we're buying as well. So just to the, confirm... The aim here is to be in the direct-to-consumer business in a, in, a, in a greater, more compelling way. Which makes sense, Bob. So just to confirm that you will be actually considering ending the licensing agreement with Netflix on the 21st Century Fox side. Well, 21st Century Fox has a different output deal on their movie front. They've, they've got an output deal with HBO. They have a relationship with Netflix as well. But again, we're going to be looking at uh, more direct-to-consumer opportunities for our company. And if that requires us to wean the businesses of their relationships with other distributors, then that's what we'll do, just as we did with Netflix. Bob Iger, Disney chairman and CEO. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Congratulations on a hard-earned deal. Thank you very much. And John Farrell uh, of Bloomberg Surveillance and The Open speaking with uh, Mr. Iger about some of the minutiae there of uh, different parts of this transaction and different properties and also some of the strategic vision forward as, uh, as we can. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.